I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Wednesday, September 15th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, it's been 58 years since the 16th Street Church bombing in which four girls were killed. Then the Jackson VA leverages new tech to combat a shortage of health care workers. And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, what a new COVID-19 vaccine mandate means for hospitals in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Fifty-eight years ago today, white supremacist terrorists bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Four black girls were killed. Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Robertson were 14 years old. Denise McNair was only 11. For Denise's sister, Lisa McNair, the weight of unspeakable loss came as a birthright. My parents only had one child, and she was 11. And they tried to have others over the years, but they'd never been able to. So their only child was killed when Denise was killed. So I remember mom and other people saying that they prayed. There were lots of people praying that mama would be able to have another baby and she'd be able to carry the term. And uh, so I think, and I remember being little and people would just come up to me and they were always talking about, you know, oh, this is me, McNair's daughter. You know, her daughter was killed in bombing. So I'm sorry that kind of thing just kind of that went in my head because it was a very smart, precocious kid. So I just have always known that I don't I can't recollect the time when anybody sat down and said, this has happened. Boom. Birmingham has been referred to as the most racist city during that time period of when you grew up. Do you remember facing any of that racism, overt racism when you were young and as you grew up? No, and because when you think about it, I was born almost exactly a year to the uh, murder of Denise. So by the time I started to go to elementary school or kindergarten, a lot of the laws that kept blacks and whites from being together were 
removed. So although I did know that there was racism and white people didn't like black people as a little child, you know, just to know that much of it, I don't remember experiencing a lot of it. But you kind of always know as a black person that you're being marginalized simply because of the color of your skin. But, uh, you know, having had the bombing happen, and then in uh, 73, my daddy became the first black legislator in uh, this county. You go straight from just being a regular black person to being a black person of some note. So people treat you differently. You know, at that point, you become somebody who's a pseudo-celebrity. You're a black person, but you're a pseudo-celebrity black person, so you almost don't get to be black, black. And then white people are like, well, you know, they like you, and they want to make sure you're treated well because you're a public official. But then also, he was the father of the child, one of the children who was killed in the bombing. So I don't really remember anything being said or done that was, Overtly racist, to my knowledge. Um, now, there was a little time, a little girl in elementary school, because we went to private, predominantly white school, and one of my really good friends, she called me the N-word, and she thought it was a joke and thought it was funny, but, you know, I quickly let her know that that wasn't a joke and it was not funny. But um, that was the only time that I really remember Growing up, you know, until I got to high school, where it was much more blatant because I went to public high school in a more rural area, and which is predominantly white and blue collar. So there were some experiences there, but nothing to overtly. So it's very weird, you know, when people ask me that because Denise had such a racist background and such a segregated background and but mine was very very integrated almost to the point of being not realistic at times do you consider yourself an activist i do i do and when did that start at what point did you want to tell people about denise and what her life stood for and what her death meant to not only your family to your friends but to this country? It was later in life. Early on, we didn't talk about it much. It was just so sad. We just didn't talk about it much. And then the whole culture of Birmingham and black people and people who went to the church didn't talk about it much because you knew as a black person you would never get vindication for your loved one because that's just not how things rolled in America if you were black. Um, but over the years, particularly, I guess, around the um, late 90s, early 2000s, sometime in there, civil rights started to become a thing, and people wanted to know. And people were asking questions, and it became more open where you could ask questions. And then also, we didn't want to talk about it early on because we didn't want people to get sympathetic to us just because we lost a loved one. So there was a whole period when we just didn't talk about it at all. But uh, around the 2000s and when civil rights became well-known, people would call us to do speaking engagements or interview us and that kind of thing. And it made sense that, hey, this is something very tangible and important that everybody in America needs to learn and know about. Because you weren't born when Denise died, 
Was there ever a period where you grieved, where you had the opportunity to grieve the loss of your sister? I think I grieved through my parents. Just watching them suffer with that all that time. My daddy was kind of, you know, you didn't see him. He was a man of a diff- of, of that era. They didn't really cry or show emotion, but my mother did often. She used to take us to the cemetery when we were little. And sometimes she would just go and think. Sometimes she would just be very quiet. Sometimes she would just cry. So watching her cry. But I think when it first became real for me and emotional for me was when Spike Lee came to do the documentary, The Four Little Girls. And people started talking who'd never talked before. And that was 1997. And my parents began to talk. They said things they'd never said before. And we had to dig up all of her things and find all of her clothes and toys and artifacts that belonged to her. So it, you know, it just became real, you know, thinking about two young parents who had a little child running around. And then all of a sudden the deafening silence of no more children, no child in the house because not because they went off to college or did something positive or at camp because somebody killed them. And so that became very real for me at that time. It was 58 years ago that your sister Mm -hmm. died in that bombing. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to you this long after the fact? Does it, do you still feel it? Is it still fresh in your mind because you talk about it with people? I think because I talk about it with people, but I think the last four or five years has been so horrible in this country with remnants of, things that happened back in the 60s that, you know, are not being taught in our schools. So people don't know, but as a black person in America, you know that history. You know that Eyes on the Prize, all those documentaries and all the things that went down, you know, you know that. So 58 years for me means, okay, let's not ever forget. I want people to never forget what happened, how, you know, children were killed. And I think people think about it as history or how it happened so far away. And I like how Spike Lee in the documentary for the the morgue photos. So you actually see their bodies and what they look like. Like one girl's body didn't have a torso. That was real. That's not fake. That's real history. And that's history that somebody should know, that nobody should have to go through that. Nobody should have to ever have to identify their relatives like that. Because we need to stop all this hate and love each other. For 58 years, it means we never should forget. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lisa McNair, for talking with us. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Coming up, the Jackson VA leverages new tech to combat a shortage of health care workers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's shortage of doctors and nurses has only worsened in recent months. That's forced hospitals in the state to get creative. 
Yesterday, the VA Medical Center in Jackson debuted its tele-ICU system. It's designed to allow critical care professionals to remotely monitor patients from anywhere in the country and consult on care in real time. Tony McLaurin is the ICU nurse manager at the Jackson VA. This is a set of secondary eyes that we have for our veterans that we take care of. Uh, it's not meant to take over the, the level of care that we have right now, but it's an additional guidance, an additional level of protection for us, an additional level of knowledge. It's a knowledge base for us. Uh, and it's 24-7. It's on the weekends when we may be light, lightly staffed. Uh, we'll have those extra eyes. Or if there is a, someone who may not be as knowledgeable, we have pulmonologists and we have the trauma surgeons who are across the country who can help us with, uh, with uh, taking care of our veterans. Dr. Rajesh Baggett is the ICU director. He says tele-ICU technology can be put to use immediately to combat the pandemic. When a patient gets sick with COVID, they stay stable for first four or five days, and then they suddenly deteriorate. And that deterioration happens actually very rapidly. And that is the time where you need somebody to pick up that the patient is not doing well, somebody to alert, somebody to activate the teams that this needs to happen because you cannot walk into a COVID patient's room without preparing. So you have it takes time to prepare. So you have an extra set of eyes which will monitor the vitals 24-7, 365, and they will have algorithms in their system out there to alert them. So if the respiratory rate goes above this, if the oxygen in the finger probe drops below this, they will get alerted on to the Minneapolis or Cincinnati uh, tele-ICU center, and then they can contact us and say, hey, your patient is not doing well, you need to come back in, and then they guide the resident what they need to prepare for and what to plan for. Baggett says all 10 of the critical care beds at the Jackson VA are now equipped with tele-ICU technology. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, what a new COVID-19 vaccine mandate means for hospitals in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. President Biden announced a sweeping set of new COVID-19 vaccine mandates late last week. The president plans to require all federal employees and contractors to get the shot, as well as employees of large American companies and workers in healthcare settings. Tim Moore is president of the Mississippi Hospital Association. He speaks with Desiree Fraser. Certainly, um, I guess first thing I, I need to comment on was that uh, we've been supportive of, of uh, vaccinations from from day one, uh, and uh, certainly we've had a number of health systems that have already put in place motions to move them toward vaccination of their employees. So, uh, as far as the concept, um, we have to say you know we've we've been supportive all along. It, it certainly is a um, it's a double edged sword in concern. Uh, we've had a number of hospitals that have, uh, have weighed concern on the fact that it may exacerbate our staffing issues, and that certainly is not um, only in, in Mississippi. Um, I had actually looked at some articles this morning regarding uh, Texas and issues that uh, they've had as, as far as staffing goes and concerns that this may push some of the hospitals over the edge. 
uh, in being able to stay open um, due to staffing. Uh, American Hospital Association has uh, communicated with the White House to try to work together uh, on making sure that um, we, we, we work in a fashion that we don't make the staffing issues worse than they are. Um, you know, our, our folks that are in hospitals, and, and you and I have talked about this uh, several occasions, that they're very tired, uh, they're emotionally uh, fatigued, and um, it, it's been difficult to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And if we lose additional staff, even with the, with the uh, inpatient volumes showing somewhat trends of, of decreasing, uh, it will it will be difficult for, for staff to, to hang on. So certainly uh, we're trying to, uh, to to work with our folks to, to make sure that we continue to try to get staff. Uh, we're looking for ways to, to uh, increase the number of staff for the future. Um, you know, we can't just go out and get nurses. So we're having to figure out, okay, how do we encourage more people to go into the profession? Have you been able to ascertain why some healthcare workers wouldn't want to be vaccinated when they're working in an atmosphere where people are ill? You know, that is a great question, and I struggle to, to get a real answer for it. I've, I've got members of my family that have just resisted it and just refuse to do it. And they've actually seen individuals, they've seen other family members that uh, uh, came very close to death uh, on the ventilator and still will not go get a vaccine. I wish I could answer why that was the case. Vaccines are not new to healthcare workers. I started in healthcare in 1984, and one of the first things I had to do was make sure I had all my shots up to date. I had to be have hepatitis shots. I had to be tested uh, for, for TD. We had to do all these things in the interest of public safety. And this, in my mind, and maybe I'm just old school, but this is just another one of those things that we, we do to protect ourselves, we do to protect our family at home, and then we do that to protect the patients that we're trying to care for. But, you know, I think... Whether we want to admit it or not, um, there is still, or there is a growing mistrust of, of government and how things are handled, and it doesn't matter if it's uh, a Republican administration or a Democratic administration. There's still going to be a group that is just in mistrust. The plan also calls for, as you know, other health facilities to yes. have their folks vaccinated as well. You think that's a, a good move? I do, and you know, really, what it was was an expansion of the uh, of the move in August to mandate the vaccine of all of our nursing homes and assisted living facilities. That went into place because the data showed that a seventy five percent vaccination rate or greater of the staff, those facilities had a lower incidence of occurrence among residents, and that's I mean, it's just proof that that works. So carrying it over, and we actually had conversations here that, you know, it's, we, we applaud the hospitals and health systems that stepped up and said, look, we're going to do this because it's the right thing to do to take care of our patients. But it would have been much easier and helped mitigate the musical chairs of if I have to get a vaccine, I'm leaving here and I'm going over there where you don't have to. 
if CMS required it as part of the conditions of participation, which is the is the list of things you have to do to be a, a government contractor when it comes to, to Medicare and Medicaid, then they require it as a part of being a, a provider of services for Medicare and Medicaid, then that alleviates a lot of those issues of jumping back and forth when everybody's got to do it. And then here comes the concern from that is that, well, the other option is they get out of health care altogether. And, and certainly that is that is a risk um, that we certainly should be concerned about. I do hope that uh, in time that, um, you know, I hate to say common sense, but hopefully that, uh, that, that thought process will change. Well, Tim Moore with the Mississippi Hospital Association, thank you for your time and insight on this important issue. Thank you, Desiree. It's always a pleasure to visit with you guys. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.